Episcopal Church, I ask you to stand with me as you're able for our reading from Scripture tonight. We're looking at Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You all may be seated. Well, good evening. Good evening. If you have your Bible, please open up to Colossians 1, the text that was just read for us. I've been thinking about um, Bishop Adele and uh, being able to talk with him and meet with him on Sunday. I'm so glad you got to hear from him. I'm, and they do need our prayers. Please be praying for them as you go throughout the week. I don't know if you heard the numbers. You know, they have 85 pastors, and pastors make about $30 a month. Uh, that's $360 a year. And so if you do the math on what, 360 and 85 pastors, that's like $30,600 a year for 111 churches in an entire country. And that's what they live off of. And so... Please keep them uh, in your prayers as we go throughout the week. I'm happy to be back in the book of Colossians here. Um, we started this series uh, uh, three sermons ago. This is number four. And we started with your new life goal. And we said that our new life goal is to do the will of God in our life. And then last Wednesday, we looked at our new life pattern and how there's this Pauline pattern that he has given to the church in Colossae, the church in Thessalonica. He gave to Timothy and Ephesus that we are to uh, walk in faith and live out love, faith and love, that constant pattern in our life. And then this past Sunday, we talked about our new prayer life uh, that we have. And I talked about the seven benefits of prayer. And today, uh, tonight, I want to talk about your new relationship with Christ. Your new relationship with Christ. And this is part of what Paul was trying to get the church in Colossae to understand. Remember, I told you uh, that there was a lot of theological confusion going on at this point in Colossae. And a lot of different ideas about who God was, who Jesus was, what was the role of the Holy Spirit, what was the role of sin in our life. There was a lot of different thoughts about that, not unlike today. And so Paul is clarifying this for them. And as he's laying these things out for the church, he comes to this part in who Jesus really is. And part of what he tells them is that we have to be captivated by Christ's role in the cosmos. We have to be captivated by Christ's role in the cosmos because it's absolutely unique. No one else has Jesus's role in the entire universe. 
And he's going to break this down into two main areas. One is Jesus' role in creation, and then the second is Jesus' role in the church. And Jesus, holding the unique position that he has, that we just read about, that we're going to walk through, Jesus holding this position, again, is absolutely unique. No one else has done this. And to be honest with you, no other religion claims that their God has interacted with, not just created, but interacted with creation in this particular way. It's absolutely unique to Christianity. Now, whenever we're talking about creation, I was thinking about this, and actually I was thinking about 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4, it says, now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, or the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, that's number one, and t the teachings of demons, that's number two, through the insincerity of liars, people who will lie, whose consciences have been seared, and here's what they're doing, who forbid marriage, Part of forbidding marriage is forbidding people to marry, but also, you can make the argument, of redefining marriage, just so you know, and requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And then he says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, there's a whole lot going on where Paul is writing to Timothy there, but I want you to notice that line. For everything created by God is good. We go about trying to redefine certain things or put religious rules on certain things, but everything created by God is good because it was created by Him. So when we're thinking about what Jesus has done in creation and even the original goodness of creation, the original goodness is good because Jesus was the one who created it. So let's jump right in here in Colossians chapter 1. I want to pick it up in verse 15. I'm going to give you nine points tonight. The first thing that we see is that Jesus is above all creation. Jesus is above all creation. Verse 15 says that He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That word firstborn there is a title. It's not that Jesus was the first one born and that he was created in some way. We'll see that in just a second. But the firstborn is a title that he carries, that Jesus is the one who fully receives the inheritance. This is a very common language for the first century. So if you were firstborn in the family because they believed in a thing called primogenitor, the firstborn male then received first the inheritance. So, but that is Jesus' title in all of creation. And the reason why is because he is the image, it says, of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God through the virgin birth, undefiled by original sin. Jesus is the one who reveals, ultimately reveals, what God is like. Now we know in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He says that Satan actually works to blind people's minds so they cannot see who Jesus is. Because if you really see who Jesus is, you see who God is. Again, he is the image of the invisible God. You think of places like uh, Philippians 2. 
that great passage where Jesus, who Philippians 2, 6 says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. That language there that he did not want to hold on to his heavenly position, but he gave it up and he incarnated into this world so that we can see who God is. And then you have passages like Hebrews 1, 3. This is that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. Think about that image. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is how we know what God looks like. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins and the cross and the resurrection, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So over and over throughout Scripture in different places in different ways, we have this point over and over that He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who displays who God is. And so whenever I say that Jesus is above all creation, the text quickly points out He is also the one who came into creation. And that is very important. It's, it's not like uh, you would think of like in deism where there's a God out there who kind of created everything like a, a clock and then backed away from it just to kind of let it run on its own. No, Jesus is above all creation, but he has also entered into creation as well. Point number two is that Jesus is behind all creation. He's not only above all creation, he is behind all creation. Verse 16 says, for by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Notice, whenever I say that Jesus is behind all creation, I'm saying that he is the author behind it. He is the creator who created it all. He is, this is his work. So everything good that we see in the world or things that were originally good that we see in the world, everything that we see comes from Him. So we see this in places like John 1. John 1, 3 says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Whenever Paul is explaining this to the Corinthians, he wants to make sure they understand Jesus' role in creation. And so in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he says, yet for us, meaning those in the church, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's Paul's way of using the same language about the Father's role in creation. He's using it with Jesus so that we do not separate the two. Jesus is the Word that was spoken by God. Again, we see that in Genesis 1. We also see it. Uh, in John chapter 1. So we see that Jesus is above all creation, even though He is the one who has entered into creation to save it. Jesus is behind creation. He is the one who created it. Number three is that Jesus is before creation. This is a very important point. Very important. Jesus existed before the creation of the world. There are a lot of beliefs uh, out there, have been throughout history, where people think, well, the Father created the Son, then used the Son to create the world. That is not true, by the way, in church history. That's called a heresy. That Jesus is before all creation. Verse 17 says, and He is before all things. That one simple line is absolutely important to understanding the eternality of Jesus. Again, the Father did not create Jesus and then use Jesus to create the world. That's not how it worked. 
Some people have a oneness theology in which they say, well, you have the Father in the Old Testament, you have Jesus in the New Testament, you have the Holy Spirit in the age of the church or something like that. You have to be careful with language like that. You have an eternally existing Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here, this one line, and He was before all things, is absolutely important. It was Jesus who was talking to and some people who were questioning him and his authority in John chapter 8, in verse 58, Jesus looked at him and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That, can you imagine that claim? Before Abraham was, before he walked the earth, before he ever existed, I am. I mean, I existed. I existed. Or you have places like Hebrews 7 where it's dealing with the priest of Melchizedek, but it's also pointing to Christ and gives us an image of that. And that description in Hebrews 7.3 says that he is with, in natural terms, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. In the natural sense, as we think about the world, that is not who Jesus is. Jesus exists eternally with the Father in eternity. Again, He's pre-existent. So you have Jesus who is above all creation, even though He comes into His creation. You have Jesus who is behind all creation, the one creating it. You have Jesus who is before creation, pre-existing. And then number four, you have Jesus holding creation together. Again, the involvement here. The deep involvement. Again, unique to Christianity and religious claims. That Jesus is literally the one holding it all together. Verse 17, the rest of the verse says, and in him all things hold together. Hold together. That word hold there means to bring about, to frame, to establish, to join together. And what that tells us is this, if Jesus is the one who is above all creation and the one that enters into it, if he's the one who is behind all creation, the one who created it, if he's the one who is before all creation, he is pre-existing, and if he is the one that holds it all together, that tells me and you that he also holds my life and your life together. If Jesus can hold the cosmos together, as Scripture claims, then he can hold my life and he can hold your life together. Which means what looks like coincidence, what looks like luck, what looks like randomness is actually not at all. If it contributes to your godly flourishing in life, Jesus is the author behind it. That's the claim that's being made here. And that's an audacious claim. Not just for today, it's an audacious claim for the first century as well. But that's what the argument that Paul is laying out. That this Jesus has a very unique role in the creation of the world. Not only in it getting started, but in it now. Again, there's a lot of different claims that are out there and there have been throughout the centuries, but the one, uh, but this claim is so unique, not only in it beginning, but also in it being held together right now at this very second. That's amazing. But then there's this also, there's also this unique relationship that Jesus has within the creation. And that is with His church. That is with His church. There's this deeper communal relationship within this thing called the church. So notice the shift here in verse 18. 
He goes from, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn in all creation. He goes from, all things were created through him, heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He goes from, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, to, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. And again, Paul is using this body metaphor, where Jesus is the head, then we are the members of his body. If you think of places like uh, Ephesians 1, for example, Ephesians 1.22 says this as well. It says, And He, God, the Father, put all things under His, Jesus' feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church. And then Ephesians 4.15, Rather, what we are to do as Christians, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Ephesians 4. 15 says. And so you have Christ and his role in creation, but there's a special, unique role that Jesus then has within this thing called the church or the ecclesia. You know that word, the called out ones, the ones that are set apart. There's a unique position that Jesus has with them. And the first image he gives us is that he is the head. He is in charge. And so the question then becomes, whenever we're talking about the church. We're talking about matters of the church. The question is, is do we follow the opinion of man, no matter who that man is, whether it's me or you or anybody else, or do we submit to the authority of Christ as head of the church? In other places, he's called the chief shepherd. And, and people like me are called under shepherds, if you will. But ultimately, Jesus is the one in charge. He is the one who has this place. And if you think about a body and what the head is and what it does with the brain and then sending everything else out through the body, that is his particular role. But Jesus is not only leading his church. Number six is that uh, Jesus is what the church is all about. Now, this is one of those things where we'd say, well, of course, the church is all about Jesus, right? Yeah, we say that, but notice what he says in verse 18. He says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's resurrection he's speaking of there. That in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything, because he's the head of the church, he might be preeminent. He has precedent over everything. You say, what does everything include? Everything includes everything. He has precedent over everything, which means all the things we do, no matter what they are, they are ultimately a means to an end, not an end in and of themselves. So the end of prayer is not just to bow your head and pray. The end of prayer is a connection with Jesus, to talk with Jesus, to hear from Jesus. You see? So worship, for example, and all the worship wars that have gone on throughout history, and there's been a lot of them, right? Not just in recent history, but in church history, there's been a lot of them. The point is not music. The point is to sing to the one that the music speaks of. You do know there is no such thing as Christian music, right? There's only Christian lyrics. There's nothing Christian about music. Music's music, right? Everybody with me? Yeah, okay. But the point of it, Again, is to sing to the one that the music speaks of. So everything in the church then is a means to the ultimate end of connecting with him who is preeminent. He has precedent over everything. So in the church then, either Christ is in his proper place or we have a counterfeit. 
And the counterfeit is what the Bible calls an idol. Either Christ is in his proper place, or we have an idol, which means we're committing idolatry, right? Because idolatry is worshiping anything other than God or God for anything less than who he is. It is, that's A.W. Tozer. That's not having Christ in his proper place of preeminence. That everything is a means to the ultimate end of connecting with him. You say, well, why is everything second then to Christ in the church? Why, why is that the case? You say, he's leading the church, yes. The church is all about him. Why is, why is everything second to him and his preeminence? The next two points is this. Number seven is the reason why is because Jesus is the only one who can reconcile us to the Father. Jesus is preeminent in everything because He's the only one. He's the only one who can ever reconcile me and you and everyone else who believes in His name to the Father. He's the only one that can do that. There is no other mechanism in the universe that can get you in a right relationship with God. There's no other religion in the universe that can get you into a right relationship with God. And you may be like me, and you may have been taught, hey, there are many roads to heaven. I'm sorry, there is not. You actually cannot fundamentally believe that and fundamentally believe Scripture. Jesus is the only one. And the reason why He is preeminent, the reason why everything is secondary to him is because he's the only one who could reconcile me and you to the Father. Notice what Paul says here in verse 19. He says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's on display for us to see, experience, and by us I mean humans in history. And, verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And what he tells us there is that all things, because of the blood of, uh, of the cross, because what Jesus did in real time, in real space, in real human history, because of that, all things one day will be reconciled completely. Meaning what had been undone in the fall will all be put back to rights, if you will, be put back together to be completely reconciled in the end. And so Jesus here is preeminent because he's the only one that can make that kind of reconciliation possible. You and I get to walk in it now. We get to be a new creation in Christ now. And then that is applied then to the future, just like with Abraham. And we could get into that you wanted to uh, after the service. But notice that Jesus is the only one who could do this. He's the only one that can make cosmic reconciliation possible with the Father. Not only that, Jesus is preeminent. Everything else is secondary because of point number eight, and that is that Jesus heals our brokenness problem. He heals our brokenness problem. And we all have it, by the way. Please don't fool yourself into thinking that somehow the brokenness in the world is separated from you. It's not. It affects every one of us. If you go to verse 21, he says, And you, notice Paul makes it personal, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, and uh, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, the Father. See, what, the, what Jesus has done on the cross has taken our alienation, which is our brokenness problem, the relationship has been broken, and He has reconnected us to the Father. And then notice that alienation does two things. 
You say, how do you know someone is alienated? How do, how do I know I'm alienated from the Father? He says it affects you in two ways. There's hostility of mind, and then there are evil deeds. So whenever you look at someone, you know, it's, Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit. And, you know, of course, in the modern world today, we go, well, we don't want to be judgy. No, Jesus just said you'll know a tree by its fruit, right? And whenever you're alienated, Paul says, from the Father, there's two things that's going to be very clear. Number one, there's hostility in mind toward God. Your mind is not set on the things of heaven. It's not set on the things of the Lord. It's set on earthly things, other things, worldly things. He says, and then there's going to be evil deeds. You're actually going to live out of a depraved mind. And it's all because you're actually alienated from him. And so whenever we, you know, we have that conversation a lot of times and we say things like, you know, well, they're, they're a good person. Well, what do you mean by that? Right? It, it's not about good or bad in that sense. The question is, are they reconciled to the Father or are they not? And if they're not reconciled to the Father, there'll be hostility in their mind toward God. And then there'll be evil deeds lived out in their life. Jesus says, yeah, you're going to be able to see that. And Paul says, that's what it looks like here as well. But Jesus is the one that restores that broken connection so we're no longer alienated from Him. The mind is completely different. We'll get to that in Colossians. And then the life is completely different. We'll get to that in Colossians as well. So why is Jesus preeminent overall? Why does He have first place? And putting anything else in that place is a counterfeit. It is an idol. He's the only one who can reconcile us to the Father. He is the only one that can fix our brokenness problem, our alienation from the Father. And so Paul brings us around here in verse 23. And so after he says in verse 21, you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in the body of his flesh and his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, the Father. Then in verse 23, he picks up and says, if indeed you continue in the faith. You see, point number nine is this, is that Jesus is still calling you to be faithful. This is amazing to me if you think about it. Jesus is above all creation, but he comes into it. He is behind all creation. He is the one who created it. He is before all creation. He is pre-existing before the creation of the world. Jesus is holding the creation together. And then within creation, He has a special, unique relationship with this thing called the church. He's leading the church. He's what the church is all about. And we're all about Him because He's reconciled us to the Father and He's fixed our brokenness problem. And so He still is calling us to be faithful. He's still calling us. And he calls people every day. Now, he does call people to conversion, yes, but we're talking to the church. All of this that he has done leads Paul to this point in verse 23 where his charge to them, his challenge to them, is to be faithful. So he says, if indeed you continue in the faith. He says, all of this is possible in your life, and it will be possible in your life as you move forward in life, if you continue to be faithful. If. See, we don't like ifs in the Bible. <laughs> if you continue to be faithful, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, became a minister. He says, this is spreading everywhere. This is the whole purpose of my life. This one thing. This call to continue to be faithful. And then not lose this thing called the hope of the gospel. Those two things are key. How do I continue to be faithful? 
is you have to keep the creator of creation as king of the church, which I'm now a part of. You have to keep the creator of creation as king of the church, which I'm now a part of. You don't separate them. So many times we, we, we want to separate these in different ways. This is what was happening in Colossae. Yeah, creator God. And then the stuff we do down here, it really doesn't matter. No, no, no. The creator and the king of the church are connected. You keep the creator of creation as king of the church, which I'm a part of, which means he's king of my life now. And then you don't lose the hope of the gospel. See, as Christians, we hope differently. We hope differently. Non-Christians hope for a future. I hope that happens, hope that happens, hope that happens. Non-Christians hope for a future. Christians hope from the future. Because we know our future reality and salvation, this reconciliation is going to take place, that one day it will be complete. We hope from the future and bring it into the present. Because we're now a new creation in Christ. Non-Christians, yeah, wishful think, hope. It will happen one day, not Christians. The hope of the gospel is I hope from the future. I bring the future reality of everything being restored into the present. So much so that even my death brings about the ultimate reconciliation. That's unique. That's different. But we have to connect the Creator to the church and not separate the two. It keeps God, it keeps the Son in that place of preeminence. And so we sing songs like I think we're going to sing. This is always dangerous whenever I quote the next song. <laughs> what are we going to sing next? Okay, yeah. We're going to sing We Crown You. I want you to think about that. We crown you as an image that, that Jesus, we're going to keep you in your proper place. That the creator of creation is the king of the church, which means he's my king. Sound good? Father, we thank you. Because you are good. Jesus, we thank you because you are king. Holy Spirit, we thank you because you are here. And Lord, I pray that as we sing this closing song, that it wouldn't just be words to a melody, but it'd be the very cry of our heart. Lord, we love you. We really do. And we thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name and everybody said, Amen. Amen.